Welcome to this Business of Music and Poetry podcast, where the life of a creative meets the real world. I'm Michael Amade, musician, poet, and author of more books than I should mention. I also host other podcasts and shows such as The Michael Amade Show, Inside Show Business, and World Poetry Open Mic. My mission is to help others change the world by harnessing the power of story. My collaborator and co-conspirator in this project is none other than Clifford Brooks. Cliff is the author of Athena Departs and The Draw of Broken Eyes and Whirling Metaphysics. He's the founder of the Southern Collective Experience and is a creative force behind the Blue Mountain Review. He's also the host of Dante's Old South on NPR. Our guest today is poet Nicole Tallman. Nicole Tallman is a professional writer and poet. Born and raised in Michigan, she lives in Miami, serves as a poetry ambassador for Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine Cava, an associate editor for South Florida Poetry Journal, and interviews editor for the Blue Mountain Review. She's the author of Something Kindred from the Southern Collective Experience, co-editor with Maureen Seaton of We Who Rise from Saltwater, Let's Sing, and her next book is forthcoming from Really Serious Literature. This is a great interview that talks a lot about how to get into poetry, but also the service aspect of poetry, who we're doing this for. So without any further ado, here is our interview with Nicole Tallman. Tonight on the business of music and poetry, we have Nicole Tallman, poet, advocate, and badass behind the first full-length book of poetry that the SCE Press is privileged to put on the world. Hello, Nicole. How are you doing? Doing great, Cliff. How are you tonight? I am fine. And Danny, like sour candy, Michael Almaday, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's a beautiful day here in Denver. And uh, Nicole, you're in uh, Miami, correct? Yes, sir. So, something kindred. I want to jump in with both feet. Where did that book come from, and how important it is to you and your story? Well, it was a work in progress for a, a pretty significant period of time. I um, lost my mother in 2017 to ovarian cancer. And uh, it took me a little while to actually write about it. I, I had been wanting to write a book for some time, but it really wasn't until the pandemic that I had the opportunity to be able to sit down for a concentrated period of time and be able to formulate my thoughts and words. So I started on it around 2020, actually. Um, I worked in the, in the mayor's office at Miami-Dade County, and I was working some pretty um, crazy hours, 16, 18 hours a day. Uh, and I would take little breaks here and there to be able to, um, to to write out my thoughts and my feelings about my mother's death. And the the idea of it was, you know, it started out actually as, as a book about the pandemic. And I started noticing more and more this kind of parallel grief process between processing all of the loss that was going on as a result of the pandemic alongside grieving the loss of my mother, who was... Um, one of my very best friends. I'm I'm an only child. And so it was an extra difficult loss for me um, just because, you know, I mother figure death, but also the fact that I was an only child and we were particularly close. So um, I, the book came from a place of grief and um, writing through that grief, 
helped me in a lot of ways to be able to process it. And I wanted to be able to offer a product to, to other people who are grieving, specifically the loss of a parent, but not necessarily just that loss. I think in general, what I set to do with, out to do with this book was to kind of document the grief process. And I see that process as not necessarily being a linear process. I think it's very nonlinear. Um, and I think this idea that we're sold that you need a grief in these neat steps, these five or seven steps, this Kubler-Ross model that was developed way back when, I find it kind of antiquated. I, I think that we may continue to grieve throughout our entire lives, maybe. I don't know that there's necessarily a finality to it. Um, but I wanted people to feel comfortable taking their time with their grief, to sit in their grief, to spend the time that they need to, to spend, and also to write through it. Um, I, I think that there's, especially in this in this day and age, there's this this idea that we have to rush everything, that it needs to be so fast. You know, a lot of it has to do, I think, with with capitalism and people having to be productive all the time. So there's this push for people to hurry up and process and move on. And with this book, I really wanted to have time to sit with my grief and give other people permission to sit with their grief as long as it takes them. And maybe we don't ever really get over some of these big losses. We learn to live with them a little bit more. But um, I think in reading my book, which obviously you're very familiar with as my publisher and, and a key editor and, and visionary in this book, which I really appreciate that about you a lot, Cliff, I think you notice this sort of narrative arc. So it starts out um, with my mother at her deathbed and it ends up as you go through the narrative arc of the book, the very last poem in it is, is almost a little bit of a hopeful poem. It's this daughter's um, reclaiming of what she loves and, and showing people a path forward, right? So it's a heavy read, but I try to, at the end, offer something positive for people so that they can see that it is possible to push through this grief, that you can see the the, the color again in life, right? You know, it's kind of gray when you're grieving, everything's sort of gray and, and dark. And if you push through, um, and I think writing helps us push through into process, there is a little bit of, and I know it's colloquial, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It is there. Not to say that you won't see the dark again, because you probably will. Um, I still see dark. It doesn't go away, but it does, it does in a certain way, I think, become a little bit easier with time. There's a term that is in every poem, but in your book, there's a term that's very brave. In the, uh, we, we, you and I call it the circular poem. Um, and and, and we, we, we talk about how uh, it's a form that many people abuse to kind of hide the fact that they're not very good poets and they have this little cliche, little little niche thing they can do to, to hide the fact that they're not. But the, the, I want people to see that 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 moment in your book that, that's just not a, a glitch. But uh, I, for me, it, it, when I when I read your poem, your your poetry and your book as a whole, it, it kind of turns your mind around on itself. So what I'd love for you to do now is explained what we call the circular poem and why you put it where you did in the book. That's a great question. So I had been looking at concrete or um, shape poems for a while. I just find them kind of interesting. I, you know, I'm, I'm very much focused on words, but I do think that sometimes having a visual aspect to a poem helps people understand it a little bit better. And so that poem I put, 
in the place that I did in the book because I wanted people to see grief as this imperfect, blurry circle, right? It was something that, and I, and I kind of liken grief to, I don't know how familiar you are with Ouroboros and this idea of a snake eating its own tail. But the idea is that sometimes we kind of have to regenerate and become different people in order to survive losses, right? So I, I wanted people to, to see this poem as processing through a cycle of grief, but maybe it doesn't ever completely come together and it doesn't ever really completely end. If you look at the circle poem, you see that it's not an entire neat circle. It almost gets there, but it doesn't quite get there. And it's also a little bit intentionally blurry. That's not a printing error. And it, again, the idea here is we go through this grief process. We go through these stages. They aren't linear. They aren't neat. A lot of times we can't even see what's in front of us because we're so, I guess, caught up in our grief. It's very, it's a very blurry process. But this poem, I think, and the actions that are in this poem, it's things like, you know, um, watching Netflix, maybe um, not being able to eat anything, maybe wearing the same outfit for days on end. I mean, these are things that happen when you're grieving. You're not necessarily concerned about your outward appearance, right? So this poem was actually written I looked at what is it that I was doing when I was grieving? What were some of the things that I were doing, what I was doing? And some of these things are not easy to admit either. You know, people don't want to say, oh, well, I was grieving and I didn't take a shower for two or three days, right? That's kind of embarrassing to admit, but it's true. I mean, when you're in the midst of a really, really horrible loss, sometimes you don't have the energy to get up and take a shower. And being able to say that, is again, it's it's a little embarrassing, but it's true. And giving people permission to be able to do these things that they need to be able to do. Maybe we eat too much or don't eat anything, or maybe we sleep all day or we don't sleep at all. Maybe we drink too much. I, I wanted to give people permission to say grief is 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 raw. It's 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 difficult. And being able to step into that grief and accept it and know that it's okay to feel the way that you're feeling. That's what I was trying to to accomplish with this poem, showing the raw, the kind of gritty, the things that we're embarrassed to admit. And to, I don't really like to use the word normal because what's normal really, right? But to normalize or to at least make it more common for people to be able to speak about the grieving process. I think it's important not to hide it away, but to say, yes, I was grieving and I did these things and it was okay. I didn't kill anybody, you know? <laughs> it's okay. It's okay that maybe I, you know, went off the cliff a little bit for a little while there, but I've stepped back into where I am now. And I just want to give people permission to not be okay for a little bit. You know, this is actually the first time I've read this aloud besides, I mean, to someone besides myself. So here we go. Mute, scream, travel, retreat, starve, binge, drink, abstain, shop, save, Netflix, Hulu, write, read, hot powered yoga, kundalini, do something drastic to your appearance, wear the same outfit for days on end, work, sleep, 
breathe, repeat. And then in the middle, it says grief is a blurry, imperfect circle. Nicole, wonderful piece. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, you know, what I hear you talking about when you're talking about the expression of going through grief, there's a lot of a kind of a service mind there, letting people know that certain behaviors are okay, processing the way humans go through grief. It seems like kind of a universal thing. We do it maybe in different ways because of our culture, but, you know, we all kind of go through the same steps in our own way. Uh, is that how you feel called to writing or was that more of something that you felt that was a calling with this particular project? So I've been a public servant for a while. Um, I've, I've worked in government for the past six years. And before that, I was at a college. I worked at a Miami-Dade College actually for, for nine years. So I do see myself in a service-oriented role. I, I do look at poetry in general as, 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 as a field of service. I know it's not traditionally thought of in that way, but I do think that when we sit down to write, I mean, at least I do, I shouldn't speak for other poets, but in the back of my mind is always the audience. Who am I writing for? And is there a message that I can to pass along to them that that helps them in some way. Sometimes, and this first book that I've written, it was is a very serious, a very heavy book. But even within this book, there are a couple of moments that we can find a little bit of humor in. Um, so I think that I look at service in different ways too. Sometimes it's not. I'm, sometimes we help people by doing something like relating to them. But then also, I think that humor. It, making someone laugh is a service, right? Um, and, and it's funny because I'm this next book that that I'm working on, there are a lot of poems in it that are that are very funny. Um, I went through that whole heavy grieving process and now I'm actually able to see the lighter side of things again. And so I've been dabbling more in in that and writing poems that I think are a little less serious and that allow people to have fun. And that's a service, right? Um, I've been writing a lot more like pop culture type of poems, which I think people can really relate to. That's that's something that's important to me, writing poetry that's relatable. Um, and I've had this conversation with Cliff before. I, I think I might kind of be the poet of the everyday people. And, and I say that because I'm not a traditional poet in the sense of having an MFA. Um, I, I have a, a bachelor's degree in public relations in French, and I have a master's degree in English, but it, but it's more in professional writing, not in the fine arts, not an MFA. And so a lot of the poetry that I know, I've, I've learned it through reading. And I've, I, you know, I've taken classes here and there, but I'm not a traditional poet. And I find a lot of times that people don't like poetry because they find it confusing. And so one of my goals as a poet is to write poems that people actually understand. I'm not necessarily caught up in fancy forms or meter or anything like that. I like to write a poem that it's straightforward and people know what I mean. I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes or be mysterious. And that's fine. I, 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 I do appreciate poetry like that. But for me, I want someone to look at, maybe even say to themselves, gosh, I didn't even know 
that's what a poem could be. I, I enjoy doing that. Um, producing this poetry that just anyone who knows how to read can, can pick it up and, and kind of at least understand to a degree what it means. To me, I think I've achieved what I've set out to do as a poet if just about everyone who reads my, my, my work understands it. I think that's a little bit of a service too, right? I'm, I'm writing for, I almost want to say for the masses. To me, that's appealing. Not just writing for other poets, but, but writing for, for everyone and, and to give people a different idea of what poetry is. Um, well, and it's kind of that, it's kind of that thing where, um, and, you know, coming at it from music and a poetry angle myself, I always kind of think of the room of people, the room of your peers, like say it was like a village or whatever, right? And you're the one who's going to stand up there and you're going to read something you wrote that is meant to connect to each person in that room has had that experience or will have that experience or something that is a shared experience together. And I think that's actually the root of the art form. I think we can start going farther and farther afield of that and get more progressive or more metaphorical. But in reality, what you're talking about is, in my personal opinion, the, the root of the art form and the reason that they're still powerful. Um, and you had mentioned something as we were kind of uh, getting into this, that um, you kind of see that there's a, a, or perceive a renaissance kind of, of, of poetry right now. And, and I, I've also thought the same thing and I've said the same thing as well. So I'm interested to kind of hear where, where you're perceiving that and, and kind of what is making you have that uh, perception around poetry right now. I think a lot of it is the pandemic and the fact that so many people have been forced to go inside of themselves, right? To have this almost like interior self-created experience. I think a lot of people feel hopeless and they're looking for messages of hope in whatever form that is, poetry, music. I, I think there are other powerful people in this world who have also elevated poetry in their own ways. I, I would I would use someone like Oprah Winfrey actually as an example of that. And also someone like um the like President Biden, who just appointed um well not appointed, but had an, uh, Amanda Gorman as his inaugural poet. I think that whether or not you like Amanda Gorman's poetry, I think that she energized people when she read that poem during the inauguration. I think that it brought attention to poetry and seeing someone so young embracing it and being a spokesperson for it. She's actually gotten some pretty big deals. Um, I, I don't know if you if, if you follow this or not, but she was recently asked to be a spokesperson for Estee Lauder. I, that is huge for a poet to be a spokesperson. It's almost taking a poet and putting them on the level of a rock star um, as being a brand ambassador for a poet that's huge. And recently I saw ads for poets on public transit. Jericho Brown, he has been on, on buses. I, I, I saw this project out of New York not too long ago. Alex Dimitrov, who is one of my favorite poets, his poems were projected in public transit. I, th these are really cool things. Poets being elevated almost to the level of rock stars. And I think it's long overdue, quite frankly. Um, I don't yeah, know I, yeah, no, I, I've definitely, I've seen, I've seen that 
and, and one thing I really will give, uh, you know, like Amanda Gorman and, and uh, Jericho Brown and, you know, all of them real, you know, credit for is that they're solid, solid poets. It's interesting too looking at how things like Instagram, the rise of the Instagram poet, right? So we have people who've kind of, who've kind of crossed over um, someone who started on Instagram, I think, and then crossed over into publishing Rupi Carr uh, is a, someone who's made a, a huge run of her brand of poetry um, there's, there's, uh, someone named, uh, what's his name? I'm blanking on it right now. It's a, a guy, uh, oh, can't even remember his name right now, but he's a, he's a guy who wears a mask and rides a motorcycle on, uh, <laughs> apparently and writes poetry. And it, honestly, what it, to me, and this isn't an insult to him, but to me, it is not quite poetry. It's writing quotes that sound like they came from a poem, but yet that's enough for this person to sell multiple books, audio books, do tours where they fill rooms with people. And uh, so it's not, it doesn't matter whether, what I think of it, it matters that it's connecting to, to his audience as well. And uh, it's really, it's something to see how, uh, how poetry keeps coming back up. It's like an archetypal character, but this is an archetypal art form that keeps coming up. I don't know if I would see ballet popping up like this over and over again, but maybe you, you know what I'm saying? But I, I think it's, uh, but it, it's, and, and I guess the other side of it too is as a songwriter, I always see songs um, with lyrics in it as poetry as well. It just happens to have the music, uh, you know, involved on it as well. And so every time there's a new song that comes out, to me, it's a new poem that has now been put out into the world and people are engaging with it on that lyrical sense. So I absolutely see that, uh, see that response. So, so what, so now that you're, and you've been involved in this, the poetry world for a while. Um, but as, as you have this, this book now um, coming out, you know, that you and uh, you and Cliff have really collaborated and, and put together. Um, how do you see, the function of poetry really serving people. Do you think I, it seems to me that the high minded stuff is, is, and I don't mean the high minded is like, that's a bad thing, but I mean the ac more academic dense poetry is kind of still off, not really being engaged with that much. And it seems like there's a more populist version, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Am I, am I off base or what's your, uh, what's your sense? I don't think so. I mean, I think there's always going to be an audience for the more, formal types of poetry. I mean, people go to school for this and they're taught how to read it. And I, I get that there's some enjoyment in this. I think that there is just a movement towards connecting people. And that's, that's another thing that I, that I tried to do with something kindred and, and the title I think reflects that. I, I think that there's a lot of unity potential for unity in, in poetry. And I'll tell you another thing that I really do enjoy doing um, is collaborative works. I, I also, as, as I'm the poetry ambassador for Miami-Dade County for, for the mayor. And one of the things that I started doing uh, just this last summer was doing collaborative projects with other poets. And I actually created this heroic sonnet crown for the residents of Miami-Dade County. And it was written by 28 of us. And we just each, um, we paired up into uh, poet pairs and we each wrote a sonnet, a non-traditional sonnet though, not a traditional sonnet. It just had to be 14 lines. 
And we did this back and forth line by line in poet pairs. And then the very last poem is poet Maureen Seaton. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her or not, but she's, she's um, written 20 some books um, and is kind of a mentor of, of sorts to me. Um, she and I were paired, we paired ourselves together. And then at the end, we wrote the master sonnet, which is the, you know, the 15 taking lines from all the previous um, poets. And I bring this up to you because that project itself, it created so much unity among the poets. And um, Oh Miami, which is a, a big poetry festival that takes place each year in Miami in April is, um, is coming up here. And we're actually going to do a reading of that. So I, I'm, and this will be the first time that the public gets to hear this sonnet crown that we've written for them. And so I think I'm going to be able to answer your question better after doing that reading and seeing how the public reacts to it. We did a private reading for the mayor um, to present it to her and she was she was very moved by it. But I'm very curious to see how the public reacts to this product that we've written for them to energize them, to revitalize them, to bring them together. I like the idea of poetry as something that the community responds to as well. And towards the, actually in the beginning of, of, of Something Kindred, there's a letter that I penned. And in it, I invite people to almost write their own poems in response to their grief and even to email them to me. And I'm serious when I say I will read them because I like the idea of our work talking to people and people responding to it, it being this organic thing, not just something static. I, th I see poems as dynamic as well. Sometimes I write something. I'm almost hesitant to publish it because I feel like it, how do I put this? I feel like it, it, it almost paralyzes it a little bit. Right. But then I, I, I sort of switched my mindset and said, it's okay to publish it. Maybe that's what it was in this moment in time. It doesn't mean that it has to be that way for eternity. We can always dust it off. We can always write a, a, a part two to the poem or a part three or whatever. I think it's important to memorialize and, and, and capture these moments in, in time for people, for history, for prosperity, or I'm sorry, posterity, but also for us to know that our poems can evolve, right? And that people can respond to them. And that, that's actually something that's important to me. Um, having conversations with other poets, being in conversation with other poets. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that I'm, you know, a, a big fan of, of, of Maureen Seaton. I'm also a big fan of, of Alex Dimitrov and Diane Seuss. To me, those are two mastermind poets. And Alex in particular, he's, it's, it's funny because I'm from Michigan. Um, and I, I've, I've been in Miami for, for gosh, since 2005. Um, but I, I find myself connecting a lot with, with Michigan based poets. It's, there are it's, so many Michigan based. I was, I saw that in your bio and in running world poetry open mic, as I did for a bunch of years, still do uh, on occasion, the amount of poets from Michigan is astronomical. And so I, when I saw that you were raised in Michigan, I was like, I'm going to bring this up because I want to see if there's, if there's any uh, element there. But anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want no, to interject no, that okay. right there. It, my, yeah. my point is just that I, 
in this book too, there, the poem at the very end, the one that's called On Love, was actually an after response poem to Alex Dimitrov's poem, Love. So I bring this up because I do see poetry also is something I feel like poets have a little bit of a responsibility not to be too, too insular that I think we, as poets, we have a responsibility to read other poets work and maybe keep our poems in conversation with those poets. And I, and I think that my poems also sometimes are in conversation with poets who are dead. I'm very, very, very obsessed with Sylvia Plath, for example. And one of my poems in here is for her daughter, um, Frida Hughes. But I feel like I continue to have conversations with people who are not necessarily here anymore, like my mother. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote this book is it's a continuing dialogue with my mother who's not here to talk to me anymore. And so I'm continuing this on. But I'm also continuing to have conversations with poets, some living, some dead. Um, I don't know if you, if you see your music that way. I definitely do. And I, I, I see poetry that way as well. But I, I think, um, you know, for instance, I think it's, it's interesting to hear, even listening to other artists, you can suddenly hear something you're like, oh, that, that little line right there was very heavily influenced by the Beatles or by this. And what, it, what I think you're talking about, and I, and I think music's the same, is we're kind of building this, we're building the structure of what poetry is in the world. We're building this ecosystem that is built from people who came long before us, and people who will be here long after us will keep adding to this. But once we're putting this work out, we're putting these words, we're putting these sounds out into the world, they're, they're there somewhere to be found. Um, but what is it about intense emotion, do you think, that draws people to poetry of all things? Why, why are they not sitting down and writing short stories? Why is poetry the thing that they go to? Maybe it has to do with the, the space it's, it's sort of, it's, it doesn't tend to be a very large space. Poems, some people write long poems. I personally tend not to write much that's over a page. I think that the, the page allows itself, it's the perfect capsule, the perfect vehicle for expressing really intense emotion. I think it's kind of the same reason why people write songs about love and suffering. I think it's a similar idea. A song doesn't tend to go on. I don't, I'm sorry. How long is the average song? Maybe like more, no more than like what, four minutes? Yeah. yeah. Three and a half to four minutes and 20 seconds. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of that same idea. You have this smaller form. Now, short stories, most short stories are, are really not all that short unless you're writing flash. Right. So I think it's just the idea that it's this short, this, this perfect package for expressing these emotions that are really intense. And I do think that that love poems can be very good and powerful as well. Um, you just have to be careful not to be too sappy, right? But there are some beautiful love poems. Like Neruda is, oh my goodness. Um, well, Neruda, yeah, okay. Neruda is like that's the that is the uh, the trump card of the entire conversation about love poems, right? Or even like <laughs> Rumi or you know Hafiz. Like there's some there's some incredible incredible ones. You're right. Absolutely. But I do think it's, it's the, it's the, the size of it, the space of it um, being a little truncated perhaps, but just the, I think it's the perfect medium for intense emotion. I really do. It, it seems to be, I mean, I've, I've thought about it before going, what a, what a funny art form. Like it, it is kind of a, it's, it's very odd. It's very, you know, um, 
it's not something you necessarily expect yet is undeniably human. And uh, I think that's a, it's a beautiful thing. I know a lot of people who listen to this show are people who are uh, poets who are just learning to find their voice and to are, are just learning to, to put things forward. And, and maybe they haven't even put anything out into the world yet. And they're trying to figure out what that looks like and what that feels like. So uh, I would like to ask, I mean, if you were going to be talking to somebody who, who has these intense emotions, has things that they want to deal with, are committed to, to putting something on the page, what might you uh, tell them about uh, choosing to share it with the world and, uh, and maybe entering into this conversation in the ecosystem that is poetry? I think it depends a lot on what their, on what their goal is. There's a certain vulnerability to sharing our work. So I would want them to be prepared for what it feels like to be exposed in that way. I would want the person to be comfortable with what it is that they're sharing. I think also maybe having someone who, at least when you're first starting, can help re- at least react to your work. Because I, I, there are poems that I write just for myself that just sort of stay in my phone. Because I write most of my my poems actually on the Notes app of my iPhone because I'm I'm just really busy and my phone's always with me. Um, but maybe having some sort of beta reader or someone who at least looks at it to kind of give you at least a little bit of feedback when you're starting out and, and to help you also maybe decide which poems do belong out in the world and maybe which might be better just for yourself. And I don't want to discourage anyone, but if you're just kind of starting off with poetry, it does help to maybe at least have someone who can kind of help shape what your poems are um, and, and to help you get them out to the, in, through the right medium too, and the right vehicle, the right fit, the right journals, for example. Um, because sometimes if you don't really understand the lit scene, finding the right poem, I'm sorry, finding the right magazine or journal for your piece is also important. You know, a, a poet who thinks, oh, okay, well, I'm just starting out. Let me send my poems to the New Yorker, you know, also setting some realistic expectations um, for where your poems might land when you're just starting out, I think is important. Starting small and finding the, the right audience and then maybe slowly gaining your, your, your street cred and your confidence in being able to pitch more widely. But I do think it's important to at least have someone to bounce some of your poems off of, at least when you're getting started. I, I recommend that to, to just about everybody. There are some really good classes out there that people can take if you can't invest in a, a formal MFA, for example. I mean, like I said, I, I don't personally have one, but I've taken a lot of craft courses just online. I took a, a session through the Hudson Valley Writer Center with Alex Dimitrov that was super helpful to me. It had both a generative and a workshop aspect to it. I, I've taken other classes with um, Richard Blanco, with, with Patricia Smith. Uh, the the pandemic has afforded these amazing opportunities for people to be able to take classes online with with people we normally wouldn't be able to. It's like I didn't even have to leave my living room. I'm in Miami and I'm taking classes with people who are in, um, you know, in in New York, uh, in other places. It's 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 absolutely fabulous. Um, and or getting um, a mentor maybe of of sorts if if that's helpful to somebody. There's this program called the Bridge. 
um, through the Brooklyn Poets Network. I, I was able to connect with, with Dorothy Alasky and with Tracy Brimhall, two really amazing poets that way. I think it's important just to have someone to be able to bounce your initial work off of and maybe try to help um, give you some ideas about where it might be a good fit when you're just getting started. And then slowly, you know, each time you publish a work as a, as a new poet, you gain a little bit of confidence. Um, and then I think it, it helps you to be able to, to just sort of understand um, what the right audience is for your work. I know I talked about accessibility and how I, I, I want all my, my poems to be accessible to everybody, but I also understand that maybe they're not. Maybe not everyone can relate to my experience, to my voice. Uh, even though I try to make it that way. So, you know, it's important to understand your audience, to have an audience at my, in mind and to try to find the right place for your poems. And, and you know, there's there's uh, a lot of that, what you're talking about too, is um, I think comes with uh, the first experience of stepping out, right? Like you suddenly go, okay, I'm going to take a class. And one of the cool things about classes, whether online or in person, is sometimes you have other classmates. Maybe you're in a, a discussion group, like a private Facebook group or whatever, or you're in the room with them. And now you know other poets as well as you've met the instructor or you've connected with them in some way, shape or form. Uh, and then for me, I found that uh, finding my audience was an organic process. As I put things out, I started noticing who was responding to it and who was really connecting. Um, how did you how did you start finding your audience? I mean, how did you start noticing who your audience was? I think that one of the first places I pitched my poems to was South Florida Poetry Journal. And I'm actually an associate edit there, editor for the publication now. And it's this is kind of an embarrassing, funny, a funny story, but I, I tell it because it's 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 rich. So I pitched my my first set of poems. And they were rejected, but the editor really liked them. And so he, Lenny De La Roca is his name. And he said to me, you know, I really like your work. Um, there was a, there was a particular person who was guest editing that particular issue of the journal when I submitted back in, in 2020, in the fall of 2020. And so they also have this panel process where, you know, you have to get through all these people for your poems to get accepted. And he liked them, but apparently the guest editor decided it wasn't her thing. Um, but he did invite me to be part of that journal. And I think that being part of a, of a literary journal does kind of help you understand yourself better also as a writer. But I tell you this because what I learned was, I guess, I kind of tried to start out with the local publications. I think that it it makes more sense for a poet to maybe try to get their poems placed on their home turf first. So that's what I tried to do. And then I also just kind of started as I read more, which poems resonated with me. And I would look at the at the um, some of my favorite books and see it in the acknowledgement sections. Where did these poets publish their poems? And obviously, you know, these poets are much more established than I am. So I, you know, if I see that Alex Dimitrov published in the New Yorker, that doesn't mean that I think I'm going to be able to get in there. But what I did actually is I went back to his first book, his very first book, and I said, where did he, where did he start out? Where did he send his poems? And then I I, I just sort of started seeking out those sorts of publications, um, thinking that, okay, well, I feel like our work sort of 
speaks to each other a little bit. Um, so that's kind of what I did. I, I kind of, I guess I sort of sought out poets whose poetry I admire and who I thought my poetry might be in conversation with a little bit. And then I kind of tried to follow a similar path. And also as I met other poets along the way, I, um, I would get opportunities, you know, and every once in a while, someone will, will solicit my work too. I'll, I'll, or I'll have a friend who's editing an anthology or, or being a guest editor for a magazine. And they'll say to me, oh, hey, can you submit something? Um, so I think it's like you said, it's sort of an organic process. I didn't know necessarily for sure where my poems were going to land. And it's always a mystery to me. And sometimes I laugh because I think for sure this, this, this these poems are going to land in this publication and I'll get rejected and then I'll pitch them to somewhere else. I'm thinking they're surely not going to pick this up and they'll surprise me and they do. So I'm still learning. I, I, I am, I am almost always surprised by which journals pick up my poems and which don't. And, you know, there are rotating editors. There are multiple readers. I tell, I would tell poets, especially new ones, don't get too discouraged. Don't take rejections too personally. A lot of times, you know, just as an editor myself, and actually that's another thing I would say, if you can get on the staff, even just as a reader for a publication, it's such a valuable experience because you get the opportunity to see the other types of type of work that other poets are submitting. And you kind of get to see that just because your work gets rejected, it's not necessarily a reflection of you. It just might not be the right match for that particular journal. Don't take it personally. Dust yourself off and carry on. Both Cliff and I want to say thank you for spending your time with us. And we want to thank Nicole for a wonderful conversation. You can find Nicole Tallman at NicoleTallman.com. You can find Cliff Brooks at CliffBrooks.com or at SouthernCollectiveExperience.com. You can find myself at MichaelAmity.com, WorldPoetryMagazine.com, and WorldPoetryOpenMic.com. Until next time, remember to be yourself. The world needs your authenticity. Do the hard work and conquer your obstacles creatively. Remember to follow your heart, for it's easy to lose your head in this business of music and poetry.